Okay. Hey y'all, I'm Tara Shaver with AARP's Office of Volunteer Engagement, and today we're keeping it rural on the roost. I'm here with Jay Ells from our main state office. Jay, welcome to the roost. Great to be here. Thank you. Yeah, so you um, you and I were just chatting a bit before we got started and, uh, and getting geared up for today, but we didn't even get around to just you telling me a little bit about yourself. Where are you from? Where do you live now? How long you've been with AARP, and what do you do with us? Wow, that's a lot of questions to start off with. Um, so uh, I'm from Portland, Maine now. I was born in Maine, but I've lived all over the country, uh, both uh, growing up and then also professionally, uh, working in different communities, doing political organizing, um, community organizing at the local level. Uh, I've been with AARP for just over five years and um, have been focused entirely right here in Maine um, doing um, a lot of the programmatic advocacy and educational program work that we do uh, on a whole host of different issues. Awesome. Well, I just made it to Maine for the first time this year for the rural right. conference. Yeah, Good. it was great to be there. You've been on my list for a while, and I look forward to going back when I can do some sightseeing. Um, for those who maybe don't know much about your state, can you tell us a little bit about the lay of the land? Like, what does your membership look like? What does the state geography look like? Uh, mm. Just kind of give us a, a little bit of a picture of, of what you are working with in Maine. Sure. So uh, Maine is just over one and a half million people, um, and it is also a very large state. So we have 236,000 members in Maine, but that works out to being about one in five Mainers being an AARP member. Um, we have the two congressional districts. Uh, the second one, which is the northern and easternmost, is the second most rural uh, congressional district east of the Mississippi River. So uh, we have very few people up there, a lot of moose and trees, as they say, uh, with the majority of the population down in the southern part of the state. Um, so that makes things challenging. I think that's why I'm probably on this little call with you is that we have a lot of rural communities throughout Maine. Most of Maine's background is in forestry and um, fishing and seafaring. So folks that are inland traditionally have worked for mills, uh, paper mills or logging mills. Uh, and folks that are on the coast often have ties to uh, fishermen families, lobstering, that sort of thing. Um, a lot of blue collar folks that live and work in Maine um, we are the oldest state in the country, um, and we are reminded of that almost every day, it seems like. Um, but we also have a, a brain drain problem where a lot of younger folks come here for college and then they bolt. So we have great schools like Bowdoin College, Colby College, um, University of Maine, Orono. Um, a lot of students, but they all tend to leave. And so there's a lot of fixation or focus on how to keep younger people here, which of course, interestingly, sort of marginalizes folks that are older uh, who still have a lot to give and have a lot of wisdom to share. So it's an interesting state. It's complicated. We split our congressional districts in the last presidential election. Uh, the second district went for Trump. The first district went for Clinton. Um, and so culturally, there's a big divide there as well as geographically. Wow. And I know I was there in the summer and I know you're known for beautiful summers. And as you were telling me earlier, beautiful falls, but you probably have some pretty uh, iffy weather in the wintertime. Is that right? We do. Yeah, we have uh, some very, very chilly winters that we have to deal with. I mean, most states that are up north tend to deal with this. Um, right. But we also have some of the oldest housing stock in the country. This is an, actually an issue that we often address is um, the eighth oldest housing stock in the nation 
And when you marry that with some of the coldest winters, uh, it makes for a challenging situation, especially for somebody that might be in their 70s or 80s. So right. um, it's, it's definitely a, a beautiful, beautiful state, a uh, rocky coastline, beautiful forests and, and mountains like Mount Katahdin. But um, there are some challenges that go with that, uh, with that weather. Yeah. So you've already alluded to some of these things, but, um, but I know you guys have just been and or you have been involved with livable and age friendly and so many of the things you brought up earlier um, really tie into the work that we're doing with livable and age friendly. So tell me how long have you guys been uh, at it with livable communities and um, tell us a little bit about what volunteers are doing to help you out. So in Maine, we have now close to 66, I think, age-friendly communities as part of our livable uh, outreach work. Um, and those 66 communities are fantastic because they are all doing their own thing. Um, and our job was sort of to get them going, to help educate them on some of the issues, but then really working to empower them to tackle their own community issues and challenges in their own way. I think that the age-friendly and livable space with AARP is some of the best work that we do. It is truly grassroots at a very hyper-local level. Um, and we're seeing all sorts of different changes take place. We're seeing communities really kind of bootstrap themselves um, into you know, the, the future. They're seeing sort of some of the changes um, that they need to see. So communities that for, for a long time have sort of been left behind or ignored are starting to, starting to look inward and look for ways to develop their own programs or um, structures or places that will allow for that community to expand and grow into itself. Um, so volunteers play a central role in this work. Um, we find that um, the folks who wanna uplift and build their community are usually from that community, they, they know best. And so really, um, whether it's you know, a local city councilor or a mayor um, or uh, local librarians or anybody who is really living and working in those communities, they tend to be the ones that want to step up and volunteer. Um, and so you know, entirely at the local level, this is all volunteer run. Um, these are, these are you know, folks that are stepping up in their own way in their own communities because they want to see a more livable community, be it Saco, Maine, or Madawaska, Maine. Thanks for that. Um, that's awesome. And I know um, some of the, the things that you guys are dealing with, and again, we kind of alluded to them earlier with the challenges of rural America, the distance, sometimes the weather, some of those other factors um, can really play into getting volunteers engaged. And um, you've hit the nail on the head when you say well, people want to make the places they live better. They're eager to step up and get involved. So um, tell me about the kinds of things that your volunteers are doing to help you guys out um, with your work, not just in livable communities, but just with your state work in Maine. So one of the things that we figured out pretty quickly here was that we have to show up in these communities if we want to have volunteers from them. Um, and for a long time, we hadn't been showing up. And so whether it was a town like Dover Foxcroft uh, with a little over 2000 people in it, or whether it was a bigger city like Portland or Bangor, we wanted to start showing up in a bigger way. And what we found is that as soon as we started showing up, we started sort of earning street cred or respect, if you will. Um, because for a lot of these folks, AARP was just a, you know, magazine that they got in their mailbox or a ton of email that they get in their inbox. And we wanted it to be more than that. And so we launched a whole effort to have regular monthly coffees and community on taps, um, in these communities, working with local small business owners, like a brewery or like a coffee shop, 
and using that space and time to give people an ex, you know, excuse to come out and be social and get more plugged in. So originally we were thinking, well, wow, this could actually help with the isolation issue. It could actually help with um, the volunteer recruitment uh, challenge. But what we have found is that people are, are building these sort of networks and teams of volunteers to keep these events going. Uh, because they know that we're only a staff of five and it's hard to cover the ground, like you were saying, in a rural state. And so they want to be able to do these events without having to wait for us. And um, they've taken off. We've got now close to a dozen monthly events that happen all over Maine. And they provide, again, an excuse for folks to come out and um, either enjoy a local beer on us or a local coffee and learn a lot about our advocacy programs, our community engagement programs, or just to be able to hear and talk to a neighbor who they haven't connected with in a long time. One story I think I love uh, to tell is uh, at a local community on tap, we had a gentleman who had been coming repeatedly for many, many months. He was in his 70s. He didn't really talk much. Uh, but when one day I was sitting with him chatting and uh, a young man walked in who was like in his thirties because um, we have multi-generational events and um, this gentleman's eyes lit up and I said, do you know that guy? And he said, yeah, I think I had him in my chemistry class when I taught chemistry and they hadn't seen each other in 25 years or whatever it was. And so he walked up and gave him a big hug and you know, here they, these two folks were who were living in the same town in rural Maine and hadn't crossed paths since this gentleman had graduated from high school. Um, and so those are the kinds of connections that we wanna build off of and continue to sort of expand to show that AARP really is about rural families at the end of the day. Thank you, I love a good story. And those are always great. The ways that people um, connect through some of our events are some of my favorite stories. And I know beer and coffee just seem to bring people together. Um, and they really have been ways that people have stepped up and started to organize. I know our friends in Minnesota um, have some of those um, brew events and they had volunteers who were regulars uh, and were just members who came to enjoy them at the time who started to be their organizers. And from that, they started to put their own stamp on the event. They started to do a bike and brew, you know, <laughs> they would go get those exactly. healthy behaviors in um, before they uh, came back and, you know, had the social part of the event. So um, that is awesome. And I think you, you just answered my next question at least a little bit, but it's Oops, how do you, sorry. no, 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 it's perfect. It's like, how do you find volunteers um, in the rural areas and what are some of the ways that you start to get them involved? Because this is one of those questions that I get asked where, um, you know, people will say, well, uh, we're not there all the time. We can't be there all the time. Um, and they sometimes think they have to show up in a big flashy way in order um, to be seen. And, you know, we found that that's just not the case in uh, the rural community. So I'd just be interested in um, what are some of the ways that you know that people have started to form those teams and how have you uh, made just maybe the frequent flyers uh, step into that volunteer role rather than just a participating member? So, we, I mean, I'll be honest, we had to sink a lot of time and effort in the beginning. You know, it's sort of like to get this giant boulder moving, you've got to put in a lot of energy to get it rolling. But once it gets rolling, if you're able to control it, it can be really strong and effective. Um, so we spent, I spent a lot of time in these rural communities um, doing these monthly events. And I would say that the biggest thing that I've noticed with rural communities is consistency. If you're showing up every month, after a year of doing that, you've really shown them that you're there to stay, that you're not gonna just come in, try to sell them something and then bounce away. 
Um, so after about, I would say a year and a half in our um, CP site, our Bangor, Maine, um, we really started to see regular folks come out to the event and to the part where they were actually marking their calendars. They knew it was the second Friday every night, every, um, every month. And um, from that, I began to see from those repeat you know, attendees, I began asking them, you know, would you be interested in being a co-host with me? Um, and so I sort of outlined what the co-host duties were, were, which is pretty simple. And so you just sort of build people up on the volunteer ladder and pretty soon they are the hosts of the event. And so I can show up and I might do a little spiel about, you know, what AARP is working on, but most of the work is already taken care of and done. And these events have gotten large. I mean, Bangor is one of our larger cities in Northern Maine, but we average about a hundred to 110 people every month. Um, which really sort of helps drive all of our programmatic work. So now we've got an audience of 110 people who want to know more about stopping RX greed, who want to know more about the latest utility crisis and costs going up. Um, and when we talk about these issues that we're working on, there's sort of an instant respect um, from a lot of folks who now say, wow, I didn't know AARP did this sort of work. This is awesome. Not only are you buying me a beer from a local brewery that I love, but you're you're working on issues that I really care about uh, and I'm learning more about it. So um, there's sort of this sort of expanded family that's taking place and volunteers are sort of at the top. They're seen as the hosts, but those teams now are doing more than just the on taps. They're also doing special events. They're also like, you know, weighing in and saying, Hey, I know a really good local main author. Can we do an event with them? Sure. Let's figure that out. So um, giving them some clear goals and, and giving them some very easy tasks in the beginning really sets them up to, for success later on. Uh, and it makes it so it's a lot less of a load on AARP staff in the state. Well, I love the language that you used. I've also found that that matters. So when you ask someone to be a co-host, that sounds like a party. So like <laughs> somebody's like, hey, sign me up. I can do that. Well, um, no, nobody minds being the person handing out free beer. I mean, hey, I <laughs> be pretty popular pretty fast. <laughs> I just volunteered um, with uh, my alumni association to be a door greeter because I was like, I don't want to have to think. I just want to answer simple questions and smile yeah. and wave a lot and point Perfect. people to the bathroom yeah. and to the, the <laughs> And to the bar. So, um, yeah, that's a really easy thing to say yes to. Am I remembering correctly that Stephen King is from Bangor? He is. Yep. He still, ha still has a house up there. Uh, not clear how much time he actually spends there, but uh, sure. Stephen King is from Bangor. <laughs> I used to be a big fan. I should get back to reading more. I'm sure he's got <laughs> some new material by now. <laughs> so, okay. Tell me a little bit then about um, what you're looking at when you recruit these new volunteers. You maybe have them co-host with you a little bit, but what does the rest of the onboarding and training process look like for you guys? Um, how, uh, how do you go about doing that and getting those folks comfortable with maybe, you know, stepping up to the next rung in the ladder. So we, we have now begun to use the coffees and the community on taps as sort of a feeder for all of our other work, um, specifically advocacy, because we really focus a lot of our attention uh, and work around advocacy in Maine. Um, and so what we have found is that the volunteers who were co-hosting an on tap for, you know, months on months, um, are now part of our advocacy program as well. And so they're coming to our state house in Augusta, Maine to be citizen lobbyists on various issues. Um, you know, they there's an adorable couple that, uh, or three or four actually, that carpool from Bangor, it's about a 90 minute drive down to Augusta um, every, every week and um, are there on Tuesdays and then they do the on tap once a month back in Bangor. 
So what we're finding is these community events have just become, you know, recruitment or feeder um, elements for our broader programmatic and advocacy work. Um, and what we're finding is that people will find their niche. You know, we know that there are folks who just don't want to do certain things, and so we don't push that. Um, but once they find their niche, they tend to be pretty happy about it. Um, so it, I think, again, the, the consistency of, and showing up goes a long way in rural communities. Um, and I think the fact that you're showing up in their community means a whole lot, as opposed to showing up and saying, hey, come to this event. It's an hour and a half away. Why would I do that? Uh, I have a community here. I'm going to stay here. So instead, I'm saying, hey, come help me throw this party every month in your community at a bar or restaurant that you know and trust. That's a no-brainer. Um, and so the other part of this that we're finding is that the folks in these rural communities serve as the best recruiters for other people. They have friends. They have family. They have connections that go very deep, usually. Um, and we had a gentleman who worked for the city of Brewer, Maine. He was a part of the road crew. He now brings his entire road crew. They all show up in their fluorescent road vests on their Harleys, and it's like a monthly event. Um, you know, and here are these guys talking to me about how grateful they are for the work that AARP does on financial security, which I'd never thought I'd see a guy in a hard hat with a fluorescent vest talking to me about financial security, but that's what happens at some of these rural, rural events. I love that story, and I... Uh you know, I think the things that we take for granted sometimes, like the carpooling, like mm -hmm. that also is something that turns something that could be a chore into something that's fun. Um, you know, they're, they're having a party in the car on the way to, you know, whatever event they're coming to. Um, and like those things are things that we take for granted sometimes about the whole volunteer experience. I'm curious, uh, you said earlier, you know, there, you have a large blue collar workforce or folks that were in the workforce are blue collar. And you, you meant you gave several examples there. How have you found, um, them to be uh, stepping into that role of something that may be seen as more white collar when you start talking about a citizen lobbyist. I know I had a volunteer um, who was a mechanic and um, it wasn't, I didn't know it until after we did a day on the hill and he came to me and he said, uh, hey, by the way, I just wanted to let you know, I spent 30 years under the hood of a car and I never ever thought I would have been doing this, but he had some friends who invited him and brought him along, you know, and kind of showed him the way. So has that ever come up in any of your interactions or do you think that there's a different way that maybe you have approach people um, when you know they're coming from a background of maybe not having had um, those kind of relationships or conversations in their work life? Mm, good question. Um, I would, first, I would say that like many small rural states, uh, small in population, um, the state house is not very white collar. Um, I think, you know, I've worked in state houses in Vermont, North Carolina, and um, some can be very much more professional and full of folks who've got law degrees and college degrees. But Maine, I think, is proudly not that way. Um, we've got folks that are lobstermen. We've got folks that make the winter snow shovels. You know, they all have a side business that kind of keeps them running. And the legislative work, you know, is sort of their, their service back to, back to Maine. Um, and so a lot of the folks you're talking about fit right in. Now, I will say that they often are have never been in the state house. So we've had folks who are now showing up every week, but they will tell us, you know, before this AARP uh, program, I never set foot in this building. And frankly, I was a little scared because I didn't know what it was. But now that we've sort of blown the roof off the place and brought in all these people every week uh, to meet with legislators, to have lunch together and talk about some of the core issues that are being debated that day, being recognized in the um, House of Representatives on the house side all those things sort of 
suddenly open up the doors to all of our members, whether they're you know folks that are blue collar or white collar. And they all feel like they can now have A, a better sense of what's happening in that building and B, an actual influence over what happens. And so that's all part of the sort of how we build power within the state house as an organization, as a grassroots group. Uh, but it also sort of helps educate those folks so that the next cycle coming through, we've got veterans who's, who can say, you know, I've been here before, you're new, come with me, I'll show you around. Uh, and again, that's less work for the staff and it begins to build our community. Awesome. Yeah, it's kind of like lifting the veil, right? Like you don't know, you don't know really what it's all about until you've been in there and had a few of those conversations. And then you think, why did I think this is such a big deal? Exactly. <laughs> They're just people. Um, so tell me a little bit about, um, you said you guys are still going out and helping uh, keep the continuity with monthly meetings. I, I think you said that with your volunteers. Yep. Um, and so tell me a little bit about what it's like to provide the support to the volunteers in terms of materials or, um, you know, technology that they might need or anything that they might need just to continue that drumbeat in the community when you're not there. Is that different from the way that you uh, provide support to folks that may be closer to the office? Yeah, I mean, it's different in that we have to go more miles to get them the stuff or we have to send more boxes of materials. Um, I mean, I think one of the things that's been sort of the challenge point for us where we're at is developing really trusted and educated volunteers who can carry our message at these locations in these events. And the challenge has been sort of getting folks um, up to snuff on some of these bigger, more complex issues, especially advocacy issues. So being able to speak comfortably and confidently in front of a crowd of 110 people in Bangor, Maine about the latest prescription drug bill is not always easy. Uh, and no matter how many talking points you might give somebody, they might not be able to deliver that very effectively. So there's still a role for the staff in terms of showing up, doing a little bit of a spiel, um, but we are now moving to the training aspect of trying to find volunteer spokespeople um, who want to be up there, who want to be talking about complex issues and want to be seen um, as a leader um, on those issues where they live. So that's sort of where we are. We've now, we, we figured out that we can build a crowd. We figured out that we got volunteers who can manage most of the details of the event. But we also know that the effectiveness of that event, we don't want it just to be about free beer. Uh, we want it to be about beer, your neighbor, and, you know, educating them on some of these issues. So that third part, I think we'd like to move and transition that to be more of a volunteer role, but finding the right person has been not always easy uh, and keeping them engaged, especially during election season, which is coming up real soon. It's fast approaching. Yeah, it's funny. I was just having a conversation with one of my states about this where they said, they were like, all right, we got to take a close look at the folks who stepped up to help out with our speaking events because um, while they might be good at delivering a presentation, they're maybe not as great with the Q&A or they're not as great um, with a heated issue of facilitating uh, the room, you know, the conversations in the room, maybe keeping it under control so that everybody yeah. has a pleasant experience and they're sharing the air. Um, and so they took a step back and had like rethought how they're going to, um, how they're going to offer some of the, the roles and also some of the, the very specific ways that they could do some coaching around um, facilitation, around kind of keeping the message point short and putting it in their own words. And uh, they're like, all right, it's going to be a bit more intensive, a little bit more work on the front end, as you said earlier about some of the things you guys were doing. 
they're like, but we think the investment and the way that we're going to break this down is going to give us a better result. So they are literally in the middle of doing that right now. So we'll have to talk about it on a future episode. <laughs> um, but they said, you know, one of the things was like, there are people who are really passionate about the issue who want to be involved and they want to be involved in the presentations, but maybe they're never going to be um, the folks that you're going to want to have uh, taking the room by themselves, you know, so this um, is creating space for more people to help out with some of these activities and be able to, um, uh, you know, create a better experience, not only as for the volunteers, but for the folks who are coming. By the way, 100 people at any of your events in a rural area, like high five, dude, that's awesome. Yeah, that's awesome. <laughs> that's that's yeah. fantastic. Um, okay, so let's talk a little bit about um, it, some of the ways that your volunteers might be involved with other organizations, if, if you're aware of this, and just whether or not that has, uh, you feel like, opened doors for you, or in the rural areas where there may be more limited uh, opportunities, do you feel like it creates uh, any tension or kind of, um, uh, you know, divide with um, the community organizations who see us as maybe trying to take over? <laughs> yeah, well, especially in rural communities, I think, You've got a lot of very small nonprofits or smaller state agency offices that are tiny. And when they see AARP, you know, the 800 pound gorilla moving to town, they immediately get a little bit sort of concerned. Um, more about how, many, how much of the resources are you going to be, are you going to be absorbing here? Uh, but we have worked really hard to try to work through the volunteers specifically. And uh, I've made it very clear to them that I don't want to take them away from some of their important community work. Um, and that, you know, the pitch has always been, you know, make this, you know, part of the quiver of work that you're doing on a volunteer basis in your community. So we have folks that do a lot of um, driving for Meals on Wheels. They um, volunteer at their local church often, especially during wintertime. They're involved in making sure that homeless folks have coats and clothing that they need in cold temperatures. Um, a lot of them are caregivers, either for themselves, uh, an extended family member, or um, a friend. Um, and so that's what, the one thing I've noticed is that in a lot of these rural communities, the additional sort of volunteer work is not necessarily official. There's not like a stamp, you know, they are just helping out a neighbor. Um, and so that's what I love about it. But I also have always made clear that we're not in competition. Um, and in fact, we want to try to benefit the folks that they're helping by, you know, bringing them to an event or helping educate them on the latest caregiving legislation, um, making sure that, that they're aware of the resources that AARP can help provide or at least inform them on that might make their lives a little bit easier. So I think most of our volunteers enjoy working with us and they see us as, you know, part of the larger group of organizations that they volunteer and work with in their own community. Yeah, I think that the um, the way that folks uh, are often operating, like you said, in an unofficial capacity, but they're super busy um, helping out these community organizations or their neighbors um, is also something that I've always found enriches the work that we're doing. And you were just talking about like the caregiving aspect. Um, we had organizations who didn't know us very well, just like we have sometimes the, the general public who doesn't know us very well, and they didn't realize that our resources are free, whether that be, you know, a, a pack of, of brochures or the prepare to care guides or whatever, um, as well as like bringing them a community conversation or bringing them a conversation. And uh, I always felt like the fairy godmother when I get, I got to say, hey, we can help with that. Or, you know, some of the requests that uh, sometimes a smaller organization would feel like was a really big deal is something that could be really easy for us 
us to deliver. And it was always really nice also to um, do that in partnership with the volunteers. One of my former volunteer partners just shared a photo today on Facebook um, from eight years ago. And it was where the community came together to build a community garden. And um, they were, you know, they had the land, they had, um, they had the people, they had the organizations who were willing to help some of the things happen. But when it came down to it, some of the, the basics that uh, they needed to make sure the garden was protected and that, you know, that like it didn't get damaged and things like that. Uh, the fencing, I think they needed a tool shed and something else. And we were like, we can do that. Like, tell us what you need, you know? And Love even, it. even the amount of, uh, of resources that, that took was far less than some of the sponsorships were asked to participate in, you know, especially in the larger areas where um, uh, people just see us sometimes as a, a money tree and want to just <laughs> say, Oh, give us, give us all the cash. These yeah. guys are very practical. And, uh, and there's a good, a, a great sense of accomplishment that comes with seeing something like that not only be built in the community but you know eight or ten years later to still be standing there for folks to have made it a real integral part of the community yeah we really have steered away from some of the sort of typical or traditional large dollar sponsorships um, and we've done a lot more sort of specific community engagement one example i'll give is um, we work now with the Bangor Historical Society. And it's this tiny little organization that is working their tail off to document their city and community's history. Um, and there's a lot of history there, um, like there is in any community, but this one goes back to the late 1700s. And um, we did a bunch of sponsored historical walks around certain parts of the city and community. And uh, shockingly, uh, more than 100 people have shown up to each of these walks. Um, and what it has shown us is that there are some sort of hidden partnerships that you might not think about um, when you're working in some of these communities that are really ripe for engaging, um, you know, those folks, not just AARP members, but also um, other community members. We had a, a speaker series that we did, and we had a woman who's kind of had to leave the event early, but while the speaker was wrapping up, cornered our state president and said, this is why I joined AARP. Thank you for doing this. Um, so some of the some most simple stuff is often what people really are wanting and desiring. And the Dunkin' Donuts coffee might not be top on their list, but being able to see a speaker in their community or, or support a local brewery in their community is what they're hoping for. Yeah, and like you said, even um, it's something as simple as a turning out for a walk or um, a, a history tour is also sometimes it comes with no cost associated with it as long as you have folks who are willing to help um, lead the effort. And if we're, I mean, I can only imagine the historical society in my hometown had like eight members, you know, so like if they were to try to advertise some things on their own, it would be bringing along family and friends. Um, right. So they would just die to have 100 people coming along <laughs> for a walking tour. Um, yeah. that's amazing. And, and I know those are becoming increasingly popular. Um, and it's just a great way also to have that reality check. Like we never walk around our communities, uh, that much anymore. Yeah. And we're having these revivals in, uh, many small towns across America. So it's also a nice way just to get out and, uh, take in all the, the positive changes that are happening. Well, we are coming to the close. I just ask if there's anything else you want to share, anything that we didn't cover here that, um, uh, that you'd like for your colleagues and friends across the country to know. Uh, I would just say showing up in these communities and investing time, not just getting there, but actually staying there uh, can mean a lot for the folks that you're engaging and working with. Uh, I think there are often parts of rural America that feels marginalized or left behind by urban America. And it's very easy to stay in the cities and stay working there. 
but I'm always encouraging my colleagues um, and folks that do some of the same work that we are doing to show up and not be afraid to go and do an event in a small town of 1200 people um, and then go back and do it again. Because, uh, you know, the first two cuts might not be so great, but it's the third and fourth one that might actually bear some fruit, um, fruit that you weren't really expecting. Um, so I would say show up and, and be consistent and you may be surprised at what happens. That is really great advice. Jay, thank you so much for being with me today. I look forward to coming back to Maine and seeing those beautiful fall colors and, uh, and seeing all the beauty that I didn't get to see because it was raining and I was trapped inside the last time I was there. So. <laughs> <laughs> so, Anytime uh, except for January to March. That's not, not a great time unless you're a skier. <laughs> Done. Okay. No problem. That, that leaves a lot of, of room to escape the heat and humidity of the South. So <laughs> I will be happy to do that. Thanks again for being with me and thanks you thanks to you guys for tuning in we'll see you next time